that's why we're only charging $10. So please, uh, if you can, someone at the table can make sure there's $10 from each uh, eating person at the table, $2 for coffee. Um, just uh, reminding you that uh, it'd be a good idea to turn your cell phone off while this is going on. And also, I'd like to introduce myself. Uh, Knut Peterson is my name. Uh, we do uh, uh, record these sessions, so uh, uh, that's a long-standing tradition of SACPA. To we have recordings from way back in 2005, I think is the year on our website. You can listen to almost every session that we've had since 2005. Uh, what else should I tell you? Uh, Shaw TV is not here today because they're a one-man show, and as soon as Ryan had another thing to attend, he cannot come here. Uh, it's kind of sad, but that's the, way, that's the way the ball rolls, unfortunately. And I don't see anybody from the Lethbridge Herald either, so, but sometimes they write a story after by listening to the recording. So hopefully they will. Anyway, before we get going, I, I'll just uh, tell you that uh, Al, he's, uh, he still plays hockey. And he's, I'm not gonna tell you his age, but he'll probably tell that <laughs> himself, but he still plays hockey, probably more than once a week, I'm guessing. And Al, of course, said. Uh, uh, worked at the, he was um, a university uh, professor at, at the management and, and at University of Lethbridge and uh, many other places he taught students about life and where to, how to manage their money, I think, a lot, a lot of times, right, Al? <clears throat> Basically management, strategic management. So anyway, without further ado, uh, Grappling with the monster, alcohol abuse, this day of AIDS where, where fentanyl and uh, opioid crisis is with us. Uh, and now we're gonna be smoking weeds too, pretty soon. Alcohol is still by far a much bigger problem. So here's Al. Give him a warm welcome. Thanks, Knud. Well, it's good to be back with the SACPA. I've had a hiatus of about nine years, and uh, it hasn't been by necessarily by choice. I had a, a sort of a financial situation I had to deal with about nine years ago, so I've ended up trading stocks every day. And, at this time of the day, it can be pretty dicey. So I'm, <clears throat> I'm going on prayers and hope that the market and some of my stocks that I have sitting in my account are not going down because something else has happened with Mr. Trump and others. <laughs> He's the most serious threat to our economic viability in the world. Unbelievable. I, but that's, you're familiar with, and that's off topic, which as an old prof, I tend to do. Um, 
So I just say welcome, nice to see you all. Um, I think that there's some famous person out at the, uh, <clears throat> at the airport, as I dropped off a friend earlier this morning, and there were all kinds of people out there, and I think that's probably where your TV coverage is, and maybe your Herald as well. They're out there with balloons, and I don't know, I didn't see any dancing girls, but uh, I didn't stay that long. So anyhow, um, what I will do um, is I've given you this handout. On one side, you've got this collage, I call it. <clears throat> and then on the other side, you have sort of an agenda, but it has been changed as of this morning. So the first part of it, I will stick to and basically give you a historical oversight uh, about, and this goes way back, before any of us, um, including yours truly in my age. Anyhow, about 6,000 years or more ago, um, before Christ's birth, uh, wine was described as a God-given gift or affliction. A gift or affliction. Now, we'll get into some of that ambivalence in a little while here. Anyhow, uh, in Greece, uh, Dionysus, <coughs> excuse me, Dionysus was worshipped as the god of wine and honored every year with a four-day feast. And here's what really caught my attention. R ritual intoxication was used as a supplement to decision-making. Now, my background is management, and I've taken some pretty major projects and, and training in decision-making, including Stanford Research Institute. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm going to have to. Pardon me. <coughs> I'm going to have to resort to my cough drops. Thank you. Anyhow, moving along in history, <coughs> in Rome, there were wine feasts that were orgies of intoxication intended to celebrate the grape harvest. In Poland, in Russia, and other East European countries, the production of alcoholic drinks date back many centuries. Liquors like vodka, which is very popular for those of you <clears throat> being in Russia for, or in some of those other Eastern European countries, know, um, were produced originally for medicines and gunpowder. Well, we got some. <laughs> interesting applications of, uh, of um, <clears throat> alcohol. So over time, during the many social, many, many social norms, rules, regulations, and laws which have been developed and imposed historically, alcohol use, abuse, and addiction has become a major societal problem. And we have it today in Canada. An estimated, during the past decade, I should say, an estimated 90% of Canadians have used alcohol during their lifetime. Close to 14% of 
of Canadians are chronic risk drinkers. And I'll get into that a little more in depth when I start dealing with Maggie, the character, the main character in my book. Alcoholism costs are numerous, enormous, pardon me, in terms of the um, national, national economic, social, healthcare, policing, and other services. In fact, in the year 2013, um, alcohol abuse <clears throat> cost Canadians $14.6 billion. $14.6 billion. And a major part of that, <clears throat> excuse me, is, um, was due to lost productivity and naturally healthcare policing. <clears throat> is there something in the air here? <clears throat> yeah, <clears throat> so, um, I wanted to give you a little touch of human side of this in a moment, but alcohol kills more people than HIV, AIDS, TB, and violence combined. Heavy or regular alcohol consumption increases the risk of developing <clears throat> cancers of the mouth, throat, esophagus, liver, breast, colon, rectum. Long-term average use of alcohol increases the risks of seizures, seizures, pancreatitis, liver cirrhosis, irregular heartbeat, high blood pressure, and stroke, and increases the risks of accidents, vehicle collisions, risky violence and sexual behavior, depression and suicide. I already mentioned that in 2013, alcohol-related health care, law enforcement, and lost productivity cost $14.6 billion. That figure just boggles my mind. In the United States, the economic cost of excessive, excessive alcohol consumption was estimated to be $249 billion. $249 billion, or $2.05 a drink. So every time you have a shot of something in the wherever, you can think of $2.05 of that going to pay for the tragedies that accrue from alcohol abuse. <clears throat> During the same year, globally, in other words, 2013, 3.3 million people died from alcohol consumption, up 32% from 2011. So to say that alcohol abuse is Canada's number one socioeconomic problem is almost an understatement. And I just want to, <clears throat> excuse me, refer briefly to some comments made by Dr. David Swan MLA from Calgary, who co-chaired a review of mental health and addiction services in Alberta. Mm, Rachel Notley appointed him, along with another person, to undertake this study <clears> or <throat> review. 
he looked at the causes of alcohol addiction and went right back to <clears throat> conception of children, babies. And babies are big these days in the news because of the guy down south. Anyhow, the problems of alcohol addiction started at conception. And with fetal alcohol syndrome. Now, I can relate very personally to this because I was teaching one time in Ukraine and our house was torched. It was in 2001. I came back to a, to a shell of a house that had been destroyed. And it was destroyed by a fetal alcohol syndrome boy by the name of Clifford. That's his first name. Anyhow, so that, that has some real impact and it, it, it validity in my mind. And <clears throat> this continues on. Look at the cultures. And we see in, in, in every, every society, every society universally, globally, there are problems with alcohol. I don't care whether you're in Russia, you're in the first thing in the morning, go for a walk, <clears throat> and they have the beer wagons. They're huge. They're like a great big uh, water uh, tank on wheels, and that's beer. And that's, that's first thing in the morning. I mean, that's there probably overnight. But the real problem comes from the vodka. And vodka is, is a national pastime, especially with men. Men are the worst uh, offenders as far as abusing alcohol in, in, um, in Europe and around the world. But you can see from this collage, there's a lot of evidence that women are catching up. You see some of these specific items there. And that, that's another, another serious threat to our society not to mention the introduction of cannabis. Uh, <laughs> but that's another issue altogether. Anyhow, back to Dr. David Swan. He also points out there's been a lack of timely identification of risk factors such as traumatic childhood situations. He, example, examples including family, alcohol abuse, lack of emotional and social support. Dr. Swan states also that <clears throat> there never will be enough professionals to care for the human tragedies, disappointments, and traumas. All of us, all of us, citizens, school teachers, police, healthcare. I see a couple of uh, ministers in the, in the audience. I'm sure that they have had a lot of experience with people with alcohol problems. Even as a prof, I had problems with students. 18, 20 years of age. As a residence hall counselor, I had problems. I'll get to one of those in a few minutes. So what Dr. Swan is calling for are more people 
just everyday people in the street, you, me, and, and anybody, to be more conscious and willing to connect in a genuine healing relationship with others with alcohol problems. As he says, this is a call to be part of a healthy and healing community going beyond fear and judgment. And we, you know, I can speak for myself, and that's all about being judged, judging of people with alcohol problems, especially when I was younger and ignorant, more ignorant. So, to, you know, in, in terms of economics, you think of costs and you think of benefits. So the question is, what are the benefits? I've given you some of the costs. I, we could go on for weeks on the costs. But what are the benefits? Well, up to one drink per day for those over 45 provides some protection against diabetes and some forms of heart disease. And that's one standard drink. But that varies. I used to have a, um, uh, a buddy who was a, a fraternity brother of mine in university. And Roger was maybe 5'9", and probably about 130, 40 pounds maybe, I don't know for sure. One beer, and he was, he was gonzo. I had another friend in graduate school at the University of Washington. Hero was a similar, a small man, Japanese fellow, good friend, wonderful. He was an engineer and brilliant, hardworking, and went on to a great profession. One beer, maybe a little bit of a second one, and he was asleep in the corner. So these are not just hypothetical situations that Dr. Swan is referring to. These are realities. Now, <clears throat> give you a, a reality. Last year, <clears throat> I sat next to a young teacher on a flight between Calgary and Vancouver. And like many passing conversations, we casually asked such questions as, where are you from and what are you doing? Or what do you do? When she asked the latter question, in part I responded by saying, I'm writing a book about an alcoholic woman. This is Maggie. When I told her the name of the manuscript, she picked up on the subtitle, and the subtitle is Rebounding from Impaired Decisions, because that's my expertise, decision-making and, and management, eh? She wanted to know more about the book. Well, long story short, the young woman was a recovering alcoholic, largely with the support of her friends in Alcoholics Anonymous. What was most memorable about her revelations were the words, and I quote, I don't know, I didn't know, pardon me, that my life wasn't about fighting with my family, conflict with my partner, hangovers, puking, crying, crying jags, and misery. Her words of anguish resonate with me to this point in time. I've mentioned some of these other personal experiences, and I'm 
cognizant of the time flying by as it always does. Um, so what I'm going to do is just focus on some aspects of, of uh, the dysfunctional decision-making that, that Maggie typifies. It's, it's not unique to her. There's a lot of research, amazing amount of research. I, like I said, I spent five years researching and writing on this subject. It's, it's endless. And somewhere along the way, I had to kind of bring an end to my research and my writing to get this published before I wasn't able to. Anyhow, <clears throat> one of the impacts of decision making, of, um, pardon me, of alcohol abuse is it, how it affects judgment. Judgment is frequently the first mental capacity affected by alcohol or alcoholism or alcohol abuse. And that certainly applied to, to Maggie. She's my case study. Her lessened judgment led to poor decision making, rapid, even impetuous choices, as, a contra as contrasted to more considered decisions. Most of us like to think of ourselves as being very rational when we're making decisions. Alcohol takes away that rationality to a great extent. Now, it depends on how much, but it does affect decision-making seriously. So such poor decision-making was mainly attributed to insufficient attention. Your attention span diminishes with alcohol. Uh, it gets sidetracked. And so the concentration also diminishes when you're looking at your, or considering your decisions and your decision criteria. Such low quality decisions also resulted from a diminished or loss of mental inhibitors. So when we're making decisions, you know, we, we have guidelines. Well, when our inhibitions go down, we kind of, the guidelines get kind of lost or fuzzy or forgotten. So we have exaggerated emotions and inflated expectations when it comes to decision making. Okay, now, now another part of this whole problem, and I touched on it just in passing a few minutes ago, was sociability. Getting along with others. Uh, I have a, a quote from one of the people that is profiled or is in one of the characters in my book. And his name is Dan, at least that's his, not his real name. But anyhow, I remember <clears throat> vividly Dan's explanation for drinking initially, and that was peer influences. And what he said, who wants to be drinking ginger ale while everybody else is having a good time building back the booze? And I heard that from Maggie numerous times. She was greatly influenced by social influences. That's in part why she was a denier, and she'd go off to a off to a party, uh, some of these visions come back very quickly, with, a, with at least one jug of wine. 
Now, I don't know about you folks, to each his own, but a bottle of wine would probably do me the best part of a month <laughs> by myself. Um, <clears throat> anyhow, most people want to be joiners, not loners or rugged individualists. And this is a quote about women. And, and this is the, the major concern, I suppose, from, from what I, my research is that more and more women are drinking. And you used to think of women being the rational gender and staying away from boozing, but that's not so anymore. It's, it's they're egalitarian uh, and, and boozing as well as other ways. So that is a trend, and you see that noted in some of these headlines. And, and those are based on, on examples. Extent of alcohol abuse, well, I've already touched on that, so I'm gonna move along to, the, you know, all of us know people who have been affected by drinking. I don't wanna say a drinking problem because that's kind of a normative statement. They may or they may not have, but they've been affected and families have been affected. Maggie's family was affected. Her, her kids left. Well, she left her kids twice and went to the Caribbean to kind of find herself and left her children back in Ontario. Well, and then the second time when she came back, her children had gone. So, I mean, there's a tremendous social cost and family costs and mental health costs in, in, inherent in this abuse of alcohol. Uh, I'm trying to be a little bit more selected here because I think I'm running out of time. Five more minutes. Thank you. Um, so trying to understand Maggie's decision making became the imperative that motivated me to get into this, uh, into this research. And I found that decision biases are shaped by alcohol. And this was especially true in the case study of, of, uh, of, of Maggie. Tend to favor immediate and often larger reward expectations expectations, reward expectations, regardless of the long-term consequences. Maggie had two cars, or two vehicles. This is the difference. She's one person. She had three rental houses and lived in one. All three, all four, were loaded up with debt, mortgages. And the maintenance started to slip because she couldn't afford or she couldn't pay or repair people wouldn't come to her and do the repairs because she had a bad credit rating. And that's sort of just natural business, eh? I mentioned her children leaving. Uh, and there were other other adverse effects of, of her, uh, her alcohol abuse. She certainly was promiscuous, and you can, but her spending, her spending was what really captured my attention because I just couldn't understand it. Having taught 
you know, rational management more or less. I used to actually use a book called The Rational Manager. She was quite the contrary. Um, the, another aspect of, of her decision making was the insensitivity to people and to future consequences of her immediate choices. And she, you know, this was not a young woman. Maggie was in her 50s. Uh, and I suppose to me as a young woman, but I mean, in experiential terms, that's certainly not. So, I find that alcoholism and, and poor or wrong-headed decision-making are related in a two-way interaction that commonly leads to a deteriorating situation. And one of the authors that I'm quoting is, says, alcohol dependence is often characterized by poor decision-making and evidenced by disadvantaged, disadvantageous strategies. In turn, poor decisions and strategies become causes for the decision-maker to drink more. They try to, they try to rationalize and, and to overcome it. It becomes an opiate, and that's which in turn likely results in more wrong-headed negative decisions. So it's like sort of a downward spiral. And finally, um, this is really what adversely affects a lot of, of decision-making, and that is binge drinking. And, and, and Maggie was a binge drinker, especially on weekends. She drank fairly heavily through the weekend after every day of work. But uh, in Drink, which is a well-known book, Ann Johnston has, has written an entire chapter on binge drinking by women. And women physiologically require less alcohol than men. And that's an obvious statement. But, and there's other, there's other physiological aspects to that. But I, I see my friend Knute closing in on me. That's my peripheral vision from playing hockey. So I guess I better wrap it up and say thank you very much for your attention and I hope there's been a meaningful message for you. <laughs>